Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to speak with Dr. Michael Pinsky, the recipient of the 2020 Assembly of Critical Care Lifetime Achievement Award. My name is Michael Pinsky. I'm a professor of critical care medicine, bioengineering, uh, cardiovascular disease, and clinical and translational science at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, I'm an attending emeritus at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us today, uh, Dr. Pinsky. Um, You've been awarded the 2020 Assembly of Critical Care Lifetime Achievement Award uh, for your outstanding contributions and excellence uh, in your research career. Um, I have the privilege of reading your CV, and you've received over 40 years of federally funded investigations, over 400 peer-reviewed publications, over 25 books, over 200 book chapters. So we really appreciate your outstanding contributions to our field of critical care, and we look forward to learning a lot about uh, what uh, stimulated you and caused you to succeed so well. So maybe we could start by you telling us your story. Um, What got you so passionately involved in research and critical care? Well, I think it started seriously when I was in college, and I fell in love with a a new field called molecular biology. This was in the uh, 60s, and they had just uh, discovered how the ribosome was starting to work, and I, I got my undergraduate degree in uh, um, molecular biology uh, at McGill, and I just was excited about the concepts that you, we were beginning to understand the actual basis of life. Uh, mRNA uh, was uh, known and rRNA were known, but how they interacted was just beginning discovered, and I um, started work on that field. and. Then I had a decision to make. I was either going to go for a PhD or an MD, and I got accepted to medical school, and I said to the uh, acceptance officer, gee, now i got to make a decision. And they were surprised because they didn't expect me to say anything more than whoopee. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, decide, I talked to my um, uh, PhD advisor, who was uh, F. Clark Fitz, uh, uh, Fitzgerald, who was one of the world's most famous uh, human geneticist at the time, he said, Michael, get your MD degree because you can do anything with that and your science is doing just fine. So I did. And so, I'm sorry, F. Clark Fraser. I talked to F. Clark Fraser. I'm sorry. It's a long time ago. Um, And um, he said for me just to get my MD degree. So when I went into medical school, the problem was I fell in love with medicine. And it was absolutely enjoyable. I did not appreciate how much pleasure one got out of the direct contact with human beings on a personal level to help them through their process of disease. And it put me in a bind because I really like taking care of human beings and being with them. And what I discovered in medical school was that I was very limited in what I could do because I didn't know enough. And I assumed that if I went in and did a, a residency, I would learn more and be able to be the best doctor I could. And as I went into my internal medicine training at Stanford, I went in there with the full understanding that at the end I would understand disease and I could take care of it. And it became painfully obvious almost immediately that that was uh, not true. 
and that I had to focus in on further training if I wanted to be a better doctor. My love was in internal medicine, and when I talked to my chairman of internal medicine, Dan Fetterman, he said, what do you want to do as your fellowship? And I said, I don't want to do a fellowship. I want to do internal medicine fellowship and become a super doctor on everything there is to know. And he said, there's no such fellowship. He says, but if you really like the critically ill people, you can do a pulmonary fellowship because they take care of the ICU patients. And so I interviewed with uh, GI, nephrology, and pulmonary, and decided that pulmonary was the closest. They said, you can take care of all the patients in the ICU. We're not interested in that, but you're going to have to do research and do other things in pulmonary as well. And I said, that's fine, because I thought it was interesting. And so um, I did my pulmonary fellowship at Stanford, and as I was doing the fellowship, I finally realized that there was a profound association between cardiology and pulmonary medicine, yet they were both treating the same diseases, pulmonary hypertension, um, uh, COPD. So for the cardiologist, if you have pulmonary hypertension, they look at the right ventricle. For the pulmonary doctor, they have pulmonary hypertension, they look at the pulmonary vasculature. And I said to myself, this is ridiculous. It's all one system. And if you look at exercise physiology and oxygen consumption and maximum oxygen delivery, it's the heart and the lungs together. And so I came back to my um, uh, the director, um, Eugene Robin, and I said, there's a fundamental disconnect intellectually with what we're doing in our research because we're studying the lungs alone and we should be looking at heart-lung interactions because that is the important thing. And he said, uh, I would never get federal funding to do that because the NIH was very compartmentalized, and if I had any desire to stay in academics, I would have to either focus in on the lungs and be with them or the hearts, and he would fire me, and I could then go find a cardiologist to work with. Okay. And so with that note, I said yes, sir, and went back to work in the lab on mitochondrial function. And a colleague of mine in cardiology said, um, Andy Buddha, he said, um, you, I asked around and they told me you're the only person who understands physiology and pulmonary medicine, so I have a question for you. Why do you think people, uh, when they breathe in against an occluded airway, they go into heart failure? And he says, I think it's because the pressure in the chest and the lungs are preventing the left ventricle from ejecting. And I said, that sounds really stupid. The lungs are these flabby little tissue, and the heart's this strong, concentrically contracting muscle. How could that possibly be? And I said, let me look it up. And I looked in the textbooks, and clearly what I thought was the case was there, and it was, everything was fine. So I went to the original papers and read them, and they didn't say what the textbook said. They said that, in fact, uh, when you breathe in, Blood goes into the uh, lungs and decreases going out of the heart, and when you breathe out, the opposite is true. And they didn't say why. And I thought about it, and I said, it isn't the lungs that have any effect at all on this. It's the pressure inside the chest. You could cut the lungs away and just have the pressure inside the chest, and it would have all the same effects. So I drew this on a napkin, and I brought it back to, uh, to Andy Buddha, and I said, I think this is what's happening. And he smiled, and he says, that will, that's what we think, too. Let's do a study to prove it. And so we talked to the head of cardiology at the time uh, in the cath lab uh, at Alderman, and we convinced them that we'd like to study patients. They said, but the problem is, is and this was well before Dick Pop had developed 2D echo. At that time, all he'd done is 1D echo of the heart, and he was doing it at Stanford, as a matter of fact. 
I said, we need to be able to look at left ventricular volumes during this, these various maneuvers of inspiration against an occluded airway, which is called a Mueller maneuver, and valsalva maneuvers. And I said, the problem is, as soon as you inject in uh, dye into the heart, it gets into the coronaries and screws up contractility. And so we'd get one shot, and that would be enough. And he says, well, we've got these patients, and we put markers in their heart during heart cardiac transplantation and a few others for just coronary bypass at their permission, and we can now study them without ever putting dye on them, and we can measure left ventricular volumes over time. And so I said, that's perfect because you've answered two questions. One is, to what extent is it autonomically controlled? And if you have a heart transplant, it's a denervated heart. And second of all, so I can look at the heart transplants and the non-heart transplants. And now I can look at the heart through these maneuvers over time. And so we wrote up an IRB approval, had it approved in two weeks, and at the end of three months had finished the study, wrote it up, and six months later it was the lead article in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that made my career. Um, we, I called up the person who was really doing the most research on this, and that was the late Dr. Saul Permit at Johns Hopkins, and he'd written a small paper that Andy had shared with me, and I had no idea who Saul Permit was. So I wrote him a letter back, and I said, I read your paper, and I think you're wrong, because he said something. And they said, I think that what it is is this, and we're doing the study. And he wrote me back a letter, and he says, Dear Dr. Pinsky, we came to the same conclusion last week. Uh, how would you like to come to Hopkins and work with us? <laughs> and so I said, okay. Uh, and so I went there in uh, 79 and started working, and they said to me, at the time I went to Johns Hopkins, well, we hope we can teach you, but you're a clinician, and clinicians are by nature pragmatic, which means you really don't care about the science, you just want the patient to get better. And that's fine if you're a clinician, but if you want to discover new science, you have to understand to become much purer in your research. We will try to teach you how to do animal studies and how to teach do things in science, but we doubt if we'll be able to do it. So I said, you know, fine, challenge accepted. And so I started to work in the animal lab, and for the first time in my life did animal studies in dogs. I'd never done them before, and I learned how to do cardiac surgery very quickly. It's not very hard, actually. Uh, that's the uh, surgery is actually really easy once you learn it. It's just when to do the right surgery that's hard. <clears throat> but anyway, um, and so we rapidly published uh, four papers on heart-lung interaction that defined the fact that changes in intrathoracic pressure are the primary determinant of changes in left ventricular function, either due to the alterations in the blood flow back to the heart called venous return or by changing the left ventricular ejection pressure through changes in afterload. Um, from that point, I decided that I should, if I was to do anything, I needed to be on my own because every paper that I wrote at Johns Hopkins was truly a group effort of some absolutely geniuses who were working with me and being very generous with their effort. But none of the papers were 100% mine. I was a fellow or a junior faculty later, and, they, and everything that was done was done in concert. And I said to my girlfriend, who was soon to become my wife of now 40 years, that I did not want to live a lie. If I'm not really a good scientist, I want to be a doctor and take care of patients. But if I want to be a scientist, I have to be able to do this on my own. 
And so I looked for faculty positions elsewhere, and the where I ended up was the University of Pittsburgh, where they built me a lab because they had nothing here. And they said, we'll give you anything you need. Just come here, be a pulmonary doc, run our ICU, and we'll build you a lab. And so I moved to Pittsburgh in 81 and um, to see if I could do it on my own, and I never looked back. I actually, once I hit the ground, I started studying venous return, left ventricular function, right ventricular function, heart-lung interactions, and in the first 10 years published the foundations of what we're now using for functional unit monitoring. Um, and so that's kind of the story. That's an incredible story. Um, I mean, it looks like, it sounds like you knew exactly who you were or who you wanted to be and you understood the limitations around you, you understood what barriers stood in your way, but you pursued it in a way to get to where you needed to be. Um, you mentioned the difference between being pragmatic and being a pure scientist. Some people aren't able to marry those two as well as you have. What do you think allowed you to do that? Well, um, I think it's, it comes back to the fundamental concept of mechanism of disease. If you understand why heart failure is heart failure, why chronic obstructive lung disease causes the CO2 to be retained and limits exercise, if you understand that from a basic level, you become an excellent clinician. So there are two types of clinicians. There are the, the uh, phenotypic clinicians. What does this look like? And they're the uh, fundamental mechanism clinicians. Why is this happening? And you need to have both. You need to be able to be pattern recognition savvy, which is the whole concept of what are the symptoms and how do they fit together, et cetera. But you need to understand the physiologic or the pathophysiologic basis. That's the reason why uh, I think 20 years ago, when I was asked to write yet another textbook on critical care medicine, I said to the publishers, I'm not going to write another textbook on critical care medicine. There are many excellent ones out there. Why do we want to litter the field? If I'm going to do anything at all, I want to write a textbook called The Pathophysiologic Foundations of Care, okay, so, because that will never change. And they said, but there's no book written like that. And I said, yeah, that's why I want to write that book. And I'll get people to come in, and the chapters will not be on what does it look like, but why does it exist? What is acute kidney injury? What is heart failure? Why is heart failure? You know, why, what is respiratory disease? Why is asthma asthma? You know, the fundamental questions which we, we are trying to address. And so that's why I wrote that book, so that clinicians could have that book and uh, take care of patients. And I was giving a... Uh, <clears throat> I was an invited lecturer at Hahnemann Hospital in Philadelphia, and one of my ex-colleagues from um, Johns Hopkins was there, and he took the book, and the book was called The Pathophysiologic Foundations of Critical Care, and he asked me if I'd sign it, and I did. I was honored to do that. And he said, you know, Michael, this book is mislabeled. This isn't critical care. This is the pathophysiologic foundations of medicine. This is true on the floor as well. And I said, yes, you're right. This is disease. And so... Uh, I never wrote a second edition of that book because it didn't need to be written. And for three years, it was the number one bestseller in critical care, which I was very pleased about because um, it, was, it filled a niche. And so the separation of a clinician, for a pragmatic clinician from a, um, from a diagnostic uh, clinician has to do an awful lot with the complexity of the disease. 
If you have a very straightforward process, then you just sit there and take care of it. But if you don't know what's going on, you have to go back to first principles. And that was the reason why, when I, after I was at Pittsburgh for three years, the head of the intensive care unit, Aki Grenvik, came up to me and said, Michael, we have this new doctor that came here from California at the time. He was in Denver, then Los Angeles. His name is Tom Starzl. And he's doing this thing called liver transplants. They've never been done before. And the first one's going to be done in about two weeks. And I want you to be the attending in the ICU for these patients because we have absolutely no idea what they're going to look like when they come out. And we want you to be the one there because you're good at that. And so I took care of the first 13 liver transplants ever done. And we absolutely were completely naive. We said, what are we physically seeing? What is the anatomy of the surgery like? What is the flow like? And we were able to build on those foundations what was going on. A pure clinician that says, I always keep the blood pressure at this level, I always make sure they're diuresing at two days post-op, or I want to make sure that the bronchodilators have this level. That is the wrong approach to understanding new knowledge. You have to be observant. So the, my, my statement to you then is there is uh, the difference between uh, the phenotypic, trying to pattern recognize, and understanding mechanism of disease. It's just a deeper level of clinical care. Definitely. And in terms of, uh, you mentioned a lot in terms of heart-lung interactions. If you were to pass on knowledge to clinicians, you know, the top three points that you've learned or that you'd want to inspire them about heart-lung inter interactions and managing patients uh, with problems involving um, the cardiac or pulmonary systems, what would you want them to know as a basic uh, foundation? Well, that's kind of tough. The, uh, there's, there are three basic principles I think I would state, and that is that the heart-lung is, is, includes the circulation and it's an entire system, and that its primary goal is to effectively deliver the amount of oxygen to the tissues that are needed to meet the metabolic demands, which can vary by 500% in one minute if you exercise. And thus, the system has to be designed to deal with that. The primary determinant of cardiac output, independent of the metabolic demands of the tissues, is venous return in the right ventricle. The right ventricle defines cardiac output, not the left. The primary goal of the left ventricle is to maintain a high enough arterial pressure to allow for autoregulation of blood flow by the tissues themselves without causing pulmonary edema. And so the lungs, their goal is to keep the pressure that the right ventricle has to press against as low as possible so as to maintain the flow and oxygenation without causing impedance of blood flow, which is the reason why, so those are those things, this is the reason why you have exercise limitation in patients with lung disease. It's because they either can't do enough minute ventilation or they don't have an adequate amount of cardiac output. In, one, in both cases, their, their three-minute or 10-minute walk test is very low. And it has to do with the whole concept of heart-lung interactions. And we encounter a lot of uh, trouble or difficulty when managing patients in the ICU when we find that they develop uh, right heart failure following sepsis or septic shock. Um, where should clinicians focus their attention? Or how would you get over that hump of addressing uh, right heart failure in uh, septic shock? Well, the problem, the, the problem is, is that the, the knee-jerk response of all physicians 
when they see a patient in failure is to give fluids. And in fact, if you look at the treatment for acute pulmonary embolus in the ATS, one of the recommendations was give them a bolus of fluids, which if I have acute core pulmonality is a good way to kill me. Um, so the, I, what, what I've been very, very impressed with, and we now have, I'm, I was very proud to be part of the committee that pushed the American College of Cardiology to, to create a point of care echocardiographic certification exam so that uh, not only ICU, uh, not only anesthesiologists in emergency medicine, but now all doctors can be certified in point of care echocardiography. We now have the ability to immediately assess cardiac function at the bedside non-invasively using echo, and it should be part of the initial assessment. The, volume, the, the two things you have to remember about the right ventricle is that it needs a high enough systemic arterial pressure to maintain coronary blood flow. It becomes ischemic very quickly when it dilates and hypotension occurs because the wall stress basically uh, prevents flow from the coronaries. And the right ventricle, unlike the left ventricle, has most of its flow occurring normally during systole because its wall stress is so low. So the trick is to maintain a high enough arterial pressure, which is why the treatment of acute pulmonary embolism-induced heart failure is norepinephrine to maintain arterial pressure and coronary blood flow. To give enough volume to maintain the right ventricle without causing paradoxical septal shift or tricuspid regurge, and then to primarily treat the etiology of the increases in pulmonary hypertension. It is rare, very rare, to have isolated right heart failure in sepsis unless you have associated with that significant uh, ARDS. And then the cause of the right heart failure is a combination of the cardiomyopathy of sepsis and the pulmonary hypertension associated with acute lung injury. So you've done a lot of research in terms of functional hemodynamic monitoring, and that's very important in this era that we're living in of precision medicine and personalized medicine. Maybe you could share what your insights are and where you think we should be going in the field. Well, thank you for that question and that statement. Um, when I invented the term functional hemodynamic monitoring, it was to separate out the dynamic effects of monitoring from the uh, static measurements. And it was absolutely clear that measures such as central venous pressure or wedge pressure had no relationship to whether or not if I gave you fluids, your heart would go better. But what we did know is that during positive pressure breathing, we were, whether we liked it or not, we were decreasing the venous return to the right ventricle, and after two beats or three beats, decreasing the blood flow to the left ventricle because the two hearts are in series. And if the left ventricle was volume responsive, you would see a change in its output. Um, and so we measured in human beings the stroke volume and the uh, pressure using a flow probe on the aorta of human beings during cardiac surgery and showed that we could measure stroke volume as pulse pressure. The determinant of arterial pulse pressure is stroke volume, central arterial capacitance, impedance, and a little bit of reflected wave physiology. So it's a complex number, the pulse pressure. But from one heartbeat to the next, the only determinant of a change in pulse pressure is stroke volume. And I can measure pulse pressure in anyone. So we showed that pulse pressure variation or stroke volume variation were a way of predicting volume responsiveness. 
the ratio of pulse pressure variation to stroke volume variation defines the central arterial stiffness or dynamic arterial elastance. And based on those two measures alone, you can manage almost all cardiovascular instability. And, and I wrote a book on this, I think, 15 years ago called Functional Hemodynamic Monitoring, which described it. And the algorithm we put in it is the one that is being used today. If you're, if, and the first thing we say is, is the patient sick and in need of resuscitation? Because if the answer is no, then don't give them fluids. If they are sick, are they volume responsive? If the answer is no, you should not give them fluids. So the first two things we say is don't give fluids. But if you are volume responsive, you should get fluids. But you don't stop there. You say, is the patient hypotensive and have decreased vasomotor tone? That the vasomotor tone being the ratio of the pulse pressure variation, the stroke volume variation, and anything less than one is, is vasodilation. And so the answer is they're either vasoplegic or they're not. If they are not vasoplegic and hypotensive, just giving them the volume as their cardiac output goes up, their blood pressure goes up, and everyone goes home. But if they are vasoplegic and hypotensive, even if they're volume responsive, you give them volume, their cardiac output goes up, and you smile, but their blood pressure doesn't, so the brain isn't happy because it's not being perfused. So in those patients, you have to simultaneously start norepinephrine as well as fluids. And if the person is not volume responsive, but they're hypotensive, all they need is norepinephrine, and that's your septic patient you resuscitate, and they remain hypotensive. But if the patient is ill, critically ill, in shock, they're not volume responsive, they, and they may be hypotensive, but they have normal vasomotor tone, then the problem is the heart. And no fluid or inotrope alone is going to, uh, a vasopressor alone is going to do anything to help them. You need to figure out what's wrong with the heart. Usually we start dobutamine while looking for the echo machine to figure out that they have a massive pulmonary embolus, tension pneumothorax, myocardial infarction, tamponade, you fill in the blank. And that's, that, in a nutshell, is functional hemodynamic monitoring. It's using dynamic parameters to plumb the physiologic basis of the patient you're looking at right now. And how do we apply that in a personalized fashion? Uh, one of the things that struck me is how very different clinicians are. Uh, we have this notion that all clinicians are very similar and that if we design some sort of algorithm and they walk through it, that we'll be able to take care of patients uh, in a uni uniform uh, and improve their care. But clinicians have very different understandings of what they're seeing and what they're doing. How do you factor that in? Well, the, the answer, that's a very tough thing to do. Uh, but if you have uh, treatment algorithms that say, um, is my patient volume responsive, yes or no, and they're not volume responsive, then that should prevent them from giving fluids. We have, um, I've got two NIH grants on precision medicine now, which specifically focus in on uh, giving resuscitation based on the patient's needs uh, and not on a, a fixed algorithm. So if I have a person who's volume responsive and has a, and, is, and their stroke volume or pulse pressure variation is very high, then I know they're really volume responsive and they get actually more fluid in the first bolus than if they're only a little bit volume responsive because they only have a small pulse pressure variation. So we titrate the fluid we give to their degree of volume responsiveness. Now, I mentioned pulse pressure and stroke volume variation, but those, we have numerous surrogates of those. We can use a pulse oximeter's cleft density. 
We can look at echo um, flow of the heart, collapse of the IVC or the SVC. The number of other functional parameters that fall off of pulse pressure and stroke volume variation, there are like 60 of them now. So the good news is, is that you, could, you have the devices to do it. If you standardize the decision tree, you allow individualized care within the process of a standard approach. And let me give you an example. Many years ago, in collaboration with uh, Alan Morris and the group in Salt Lake City, we created a, a closed-loop ventilator management program for patients with ARDS that um, was an NIH-funded project. And you would go into the ICU and you'd say, manage by protocol, and the machine would tell you what to do, and you could either agree to dis or disagree with it. In the first, and it would wean the patient too. In the first six months, we had about uh, 40 to 80 percent, depending on the physician, lack of compliance with the protocol because they disagreed with it, and they had the right to disagree. But what people saw was it worked, and it worked when they weren't present. So it allowed weaning to occur when they were having lunch or when they were sleeping. So the patient was getting weaned while they weren't there, or the patient was getting stabilized when they weren't there, and they, when they came back, they were in a better condition. And in the second six months, and this is part of the paper, we had an 80% compliance with the protocol. And that when doctors, nurses would come in, they'd say, is the patient on the protocol? Good. What is their status now? So physicians never go into the hospital and say, today I'm going to practice bad medicine. The problem is they don't trust these protocols to be accurate. But if you can show them that they are working in their own eyes, they will see them and they will trust them. Just like we trust the protocols now for weight-based heparin, uh, insulin, uh, this is, we use those now, you don't even think about them. I assure you, 15, 20 years ago, we would never have used those protocols. Okay? But now they're just part of the, uh, the background noise that you're taking care of your patient. So my answer to you is, these things will become common in precision medicine when they're, when they're shown to the clinician to be useful for their patient care. Uh, that's very important to know. Um, so one question that we keep on battling is what endpoints should we be looking at, especially in critical care where it's so difficult to find a mortality benefits with many of the treatments or therapies that we have? And some have advocated for surrogate endpoints, but as you know over the 40 years of experience that sometimes those surrogate endpoints, um, they may appear to be providing benefit, but then when we go look at mortality, it actually causes harm. So what's your, uh, over, over the last 40 years or all years of experience, what's your take-home message for clinicians and researchers who are trying to find a better, more effective therapy? Well, I think you need to focus your uh, decisions. Um, there's no, just because I... Um, make the kidneys work better short-term doesn't mean that the person's going to live longer. The treatments that you give one at a time have specific effects on what they're doing. Hopefully, if you stop an overwhelming system such as sepsis, we do know that early antibiotics and, uh, I'm sorry, early appropriate antibiotics in a person presenting with sepsis is associated with decreased mortality long-term. We also know that there's no relationship so far 
between how soon you give fluids and whether or not they survive. Since at the end of the day, everyone is going to die. What we really care about is that we have a decrease in premature deaths and that the quality of life is maximized as much. And things that will make your quality of life miserable are going into acute renal failure and needing dialysis, requiring mechanical ventilation and unable to walk very far without shortness of breath. Uh, and so focusing in on specific uh, processes and how the treatment you're using works for that process makes a lot of sense. We if presumably... The biggest problem here, I'm sorry, let me rephrase this. The biggest problem is we don't know why people die. Um, and therefore, to say that the mortality rate of a patient in both groups was the same may be because of a phenomena that we were not addressing with our treatment. So the, what I recommend to people, well, well let me just say, uh, a colleague of mine at Vanderbilt said, it's, it's impossible to have a 90-day survival if you have a 28-day mortality. So the fact of the matter is, if I can be alive for at least 28 days, then I have the chance of being alive at 90 days. But at the end of the end of the uh, end of the day, at 100, I mean, at uh, 10 years out, you know, there'll be a lot of people that are dead. So the point is, is that how you define effectiveness depends on what the goal of the treatment is. If we're talking about specifically uh, ventilator support for ARDS or uh, cardiovascular support for sepsis and, and shock, those things are meant to stabilize the patient and get them off the ventilator so they won't die short term. It is unclear, it is unclear if that's going to have long-term benefits outside of preventing short-term organ dysfunction and the mortality associated with that short-term organ dysfunction. So to answer your question, we don't have a good answer for how to assess the effectiveness of therapies, but we should be considering the effectiveness of therapies based on what their primary goals are. If it's to restore perfusion, prevent organ injury, that should be the goal. And so you, should... you need to... So it's a very clearly defined goal uh, when you're thinking about the therapy. I want to dovetail that with, the, the, with machine learning um, because... This is the new horizon that people are trying to fit into uh, clinical medicine and research. And how do you think machine learning is going to help us to use large data to improve health and prevent disease uh, in the future? Well, I've been studying machine learning approach now for about 15 years. It's part of our research, as you know. Uh, machine learning is simply a tool to allow you to look at complex systems and get in, get information from it that well, you could have not readily inferred because the data was too complex or the patterns that were present are obscured by other noise that you can't filter out because your 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 vision whatever that is your intellectual vision does not have that ability to filter it not that you're anything wrong with you it's just the nature of of data and science so machine learning is a, a, a science that allows us to, to, to create informative, uh, in, uh, informative decisions that are based on data that can be validated. So, for example, um, in the future, this will be an inherent part of the uh, bedside monitors. It should be today. Uh, 
We and others have created um, uh, smart alerts that tell you that someone is going to be unstable 20 to 30 minutes beforehand with a high degree of accuracy. Uh, we're working on six hours beforehand. We can probably do that for sepsis. Um, and so these will become just a part of the system. Um, they will also tell you that when you give a treatment, the treatment is making your patient better or it's not working. Just because you know a person's hypovolemic and you give them fluid, if their bleeding is the cause of it into their gut, they're not going to get better even though you're giving them fluid. So the, the alarm tells you they need fluid, and you give the fluid and they're not getting better. It's not because they didn't, they did, the arm didn't work. It's that you're not giving the right treatment. The treatment is to stop the bleeding. Okay. So machine learning allows us to create uh, fuse parameters and alerts that cut through artifact and extraneous data in ways that allow us to be more intelligent in what we're doing because the information we get is more focused. To do that properly, however, we have actually, let me rephrase that. We have not done that properly across the board. And the reasons are, are because either doctors went to a computer scientists and say, do this for me, or computer scientists went to data and said, I'm going to create a model. And in one case, the doctors get what they want, which is highly predicted, but only works in that one set of patients that they looked at because it overfit. Or in the com uh, computer people's thing, they create something that's useless because it had no clinical relevance, but it did work with a computer model. To do this properly, you need to have clinicians who are cognizant of machine learning principles in computer science and computer scientists who are willing to work closely elbow-to-elbow elbow with clinicians to work at making the, uh, the models they make clinically relevant. That is starting to become the case in certain centers, for example, in Emory, uh, University of Virginia, uh, here in Pittsburgh, of course, and uh, UC San Francisco. Um, I would like to see it more commonplace. But when that does become more commonplace, uh, we will uh, start to see that. Uh, and it's going to be happening. When we were first doing our work 10 years ago, or later than that, I gave a few lectures at ATS and others. People had no idea what I was talking about. Now they had entire sessions on that. So it is the future, but it has to be linked between medicine and computer science. And it's just, it's like, it's like molecular biology. Molecular biology is, is a, a set of tools that allow you to ask questions. Machine learning is a set of tools that allow you to ask questions of large data. That's all it is. It's n there's nothing fancy about it. It's just it's a very powerful tool. So, Dr. Pinsky, you've demonstrated to our audience uh, your your width, breadth, and depth of uh, expertise and knowledge in terms of molecular medicine, heart-lung interactions, hemodynamic monitoring, machine learning. And the question that a lot of young folk, um, or even those uh, who are your peers may be asking you is, how did you do it? Um, how did you manage to balance your daily clinical research, teaching, and even your personal life? Um, and how is it that you succeeded and others burned out or were unable to uh, reach the same level? So maybe you could share with us uh, how you've managed to keep it all together and uh, be so successful and uh, benefit the community so much. Well, thank you for that question. Um, I will say that all my life, without exception, I have been enthusiastic. Um, and 
what medicine had allowed me to do was to focus that enthusiasm. But the people who know me know that I'm always excited about what I'm doing, whether it's rooting for my son in his soccer game or the family. And so life is to be lived. You should enjoy it. Uh, the reason that I was uh, as successful as I was had a lot to do with people who supported me initially, because without that you can't go. Having smart mentors initially who got me going, but once that was the case, uh, I then started training others. Um, but it is the absolute enthusiasm for what you're doing. The biggest problem is balancing your clinical load with personal life and research, because the clinical load when you're on call is profoundly demanding, and it takes a lot of time. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, as a young researcher, you need to get some sort of a training grant, whether it be a K award or, if you're lucky, an R01, but usually a K23 or KOA, because then that will give you enough protected time when you're in your young years, which is when you really do blossom as a young assistant professor, to be able to get enough strength and gravitas in your studies and questions to allow you to see. Vision in academics is everything, and vision doesn't come overnight. It requires time. And so if you're enthusiastic and you can get that support, I got the equivalent of a K-23 award uh, my, within six months of coming to the University of Pittsburgh. It was from the VA, and it was called a Career Achievement Award, and it was for five years. And it basically covered my salary, so I only had to attend, I think, uh, 12, 12 weeks a year, or maybe with 16. And the rest of the time, I was able to do research. If I had not had that sort of support, no matter how enthusiastic I would have been, my career would have been delayed by at least five years in terms of what I was doing. So I would say that if you really want to have a career and to balance the things you're doing, you have to be able to limit your clinical commitments because you have funding to support it, and you need to aggressively go after funding for that. Otherwise, in today's world, the amount of patients you have to see and the commitment to documentation and stuff is so onerous in terms of time that you will not be able to effectively complete your research unless you're really quite uh, willing to compromise everything else in your life. And so to not do that, to be able to balance clinical with research and home you need to be on a funded grant that covers your salary. And the NIH gives us the K awards, the K08, if you're doing basic science, even if you're an MD, and the K23, which is clinical, applied clinical science. Those two are wonderful vehicles. And if you can get on an institutional one, which is called a K01, that's great too. But you need to be with the research group when you start off and then have this supporting of your time to allow you to go forward. Because once you've done that, and once I did that, I was able to go back to being what you would call a full-time clinician, but I had 50% of my salary covered by federal funding. So even though I was a clinician with call and being in the hospital overnight, et cetera, I wasn't doing it so much so that I was exhausted the next day, next week, and wasn't able to um, do the research and be with my family. What I see happening, and the reason why most people burned out, and at the end of the day, there are very few people my age standing doing research in, in medicine, is because they uh, were unable to maintain federal funding, which is an onerous thing to deal with, I assure you. 
uh, I've got four grants, and, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to not being the PI on any of them soon. <laughs> but um, uh, the uh, the point is is that um, it is very onerous to get the funding, and what happens usually is they just get tired and they say, you know, there's too many more things in life. I can take care of patients just fine. And yes, I liked doing this, but it's not worth it. If you don't have a passion for discovery, when you discover something, you don't think this is really neat. If you're not excited about going into the lab every day because you finally figured you're doing something, then it's going to be very hard to sustain that. We discover new things every year, things that were never known before and that will, will remain in the scientific world once we're dead. So we are building bricks on that foundation of greatness for the world in terms of our understanding of science every day. That causes me to always be enthusiastic and optimistic going forward. Have I lost good trainees who are brilliant to private practice or industry? Yes. Okay. They probably were smart. They realized that this was not their personality, this was not the lifestyle they wanted, and they chose what they wanted, and they made the right decision. But if this is what you want to do, you want to become an academic uh, clinical investigator, then you have to have passion, and you have to have focus, and you have to love it. The way to do it, realistically, is you need to get federal funding or state funding or whatever that covers part of your salary so that you don't have to make all of your money from being a clinician. Because if you have to be a full-time clinician, you will very rapidly burn out in the research effort. You can't support your, That's a non-supportable uh, lifestyle. So, Spencer, you've demonstrated the importance of passion and focus. And what struck me is that you seem to know when to change tack. As you mentioned, you knew when you had to leave Hopkins and go to Pittsburgh or, or leave a certain place and go elsewhere. Um, do you think that's just innate, uh, your way of reading uh, the, the, the situation, or did you rely on uh, research mentors, or how did you go about that decision? Because uh, it's a pretty big decision to make for some people. Well, the leaving Hopkins was a reality decision when I was looking at my papers, and I was one of my buddies said to me, congratulations, that's a great paper. And I said, yeah, but so-and-so came up with that idea. So-and-so came up with that part of it. And he said, no, but you put it all together. And I said, but it was a team effort. And I went home that day and I said to my girlfriend, who was soon to be my wife, that I don't know if this is me or this is just me being a really good scribe. I don't want to live a lie. I don't want to wake up when I'm in my 40s and realize that I'm really just somebody else's assistant. Okay? If I'm going to do that, I might as well go out and do what I also love, and that's to be a doctor, because I know I'm a good doctor. Okay? I don't want to live a lie. Okay? And so that's, that, was a, that was a decision that came early. Since then, the only decisions I made were based on the uh, events around me and the reality of what I was discovering. I started out looking at just heart-lung interactions, moved to septic shock and peripheral blood flow, microcirculation, realized I needed machine learning to go further than that, and saw the whole system as one. That was taking one step at a time, stopping and looking around and seeing where you are. It was not any special epiphany on my part. Okay. It was that this is what I see, this is where it's going. And I listened to other researchers and what they were doing and said that's a good idea and whenever possible collaborated with them. Uh, so to answer your question, 
Um, I just think you have to have situational awareness. Uh, and to do that, I don't think you need situational awareness uh, of your career continuously. As a matter of fact, I've said to many of the fellows, you probably only want to do this once or twice a year because <laughs> it could be very paralyzing. But once or twice a year, you, should, you would be amazed. You would be amazed how many people have never considered their career path. They just assume they're going to continue doing what they're doing. And when you ask them, and I've been, I ran our training program for 20 years, you ask them, what do you want to do in five years? They look, like, look at you like a deer in the headlights. They have no idea. I said, well, do you think you should think that far in advance? I said, not every day, but do you think you should understand where you want to be and what things you need to do? And for that, I tell them um, there is a, uh, a phrase within Alice and Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. Alice is walking in the forest, and she comes up to this um, intersection of the paths, and there are like five paths going off in all directions, and there's this great big mushroom with a caterpillar smoking a water pipe, a hookah. And she says, please, sir, which way do I go from here? There's so many paths, I don't know which one to take. And he says, well, that depends a great deal on where you want to get to. And she says, I don't really care where I get to as long as I get somewhere. And he says, then it really doesn't matter which path you take. Well, that's uh, pretty profound. Um I want to turn to your personal life, and, and, and you mentioned uh, uh, that you and your then-girlfriend, your now-wife, uh, you've been together for many years. What kind of a strain does that put on one's uh, marriage? And uh, in order to have such a successful career, I can only imagine that um, your wife has been through a lot with you. What advice would you give to um, married folk uh, uh, in, in terms of preserving their marriage um, as well as their career? Well, um, I would say that when everyone, my wife's name is Janice, when people meet Janice, they come back and they say, I get it. <laughs> She's got a strong personality. She can stand up to me. Okay. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we love each other very much and always have. Uh, my children consider us a bit too sappy at times. <laughs> but the uh, point is that, you know, uh, there has to be a fundamental commitment that you're in this for life. My wife was a banker uh, for many years, actually making more money than me, which I was really happy about, by the way. <laughs> but uh, um, the point is, is that um, there, it, you, it, uh, marriage is a partnership. Uh, a partner doesn't mean you're equal. There are certain things that she does much better than I do, and there are certain things I do much better than she does, and that partnership changes over time. Um, there's no question that she has the babies. I don't, but I can still be a good father. Uh, she's a, she, I was the best cook initially when we married, and now she's so much a better cook that people laugh. Only mm -hmm. every grill meats on the grill. But the point is, is that um, you have to have it a partnership. The hardest time in our life happened when we had young children, and I was going to international and national meetings and would be gone for four or five days at a time. Okay, and I tell you that was the absolute hardest time. Okay. Later, when I did that and the kids were grown up, it was no big deal. So going to these meetings, which I do often, um, becomes a very hard thing uh, for the family. And the burden then falls on the one who stays home, which is usually the wife. And so I would say that you have to be very sensitive to that. I've talked to many other 
successful people and they say the same thing. The hardest thing for their family and for their wives is when they leave and go to the meetings and are gone for four days. Okay. You wouldn't think four days is bad. Try it sometime. Have your wife leave for four days and you have to take care of the kids for those four days plus do anything else you're supposed to do. It's not easy. And so appreciating that um, and trying to, and whenever possible, getting a babysitter so that she can join you at the meetings, that's a very big plus. And that, that was actually the base, one of the logics for my very first sabbatical in Brussels was I could take the entire family and we could be there together so we were all on a one-year uh, business trip okay, as a group. And that worked very well. So I would say that the important, the, the, no matter what, um, being a clinician and being gone for long hours and having to spend night is, is tough. But the hardest part really is when you go away to meetings and you're not at home. That's when they really do miss you. And so you need to be very, very cognizant of that, and whenever possible, either bring them along or make the meetings shorter. Okay, and that's uh, an unfortunate reality. Well, that's really good advice. Um, and uh, we definitely thank your wife and Janice for allowing us to share, uh, for allowing her to share you with us. Um, I, I want to ask you a question about what you think uh, the field of critical care will look like in the next 10 to 15 years, and where should young clinicians be uh, paying their attention, and uh, what can we expect? Well, the, the, the field of critical care is already moving in this direction. Hospitals are going to be, critical care is going to be the ICU without walls. At the moment now, the intensive care unit is a unit, okay? And the reason that was the case is we concentrated all the equipment and specialty nurses in one area. In the future, all hospitals are going to be ICUs. The whole hospital is going to be an ICU. You take the equipment to the patient. It'll be a much more efficient system. If you're not sick enough to be in a hospital, you'll go to a hospital or something like that where you'll get your chemotherapy or other stuff. And we are, so the, the future is going to be only acute care people in the hospital. It's going to have, it's going to be completely wired with information such that we'll have smart alarms and alerts uh, so that you'll get to the patient's bedside where needed. There will be no substitute for hands on the patient bedside diagnosis and understanding what you're doing. But a lot of the procedures will be done by proceduralists who get paid to do them, and you can then focus in on trying to figure out what's wrong with the patient, how to make them better, and deal with the very human side of talking to them and their families. The one thing that will never go away is the patient-family interaction with you. And one of the things I say to people is, we go into an intensive care unit every day. Most other doctors and nurses in the hospital are afraid to even walk in those units, and we live there. Can you imagine what it's like for a uh, layman who's not even in medicine to have their family member in that ICU? How scary that must be. That will never change. That requires compassionate uh, physicians and nurses to be able to deal with the families and the patients in such a way that when it's all over, whether the patient dies or gets out, that the whole family isn't stressed in such a way that it becomes a horrible experience. And that will never change. And then in terms of the 
COVID-19 pandemic, it, it, it seems to have changed a lot of practice um, uh, over the last few months. Uh, what do you think it's going to leave us with? Uh, how are we going to emerge uh, from this pandemic, which may continue for another year or so, and how is it going to change the field of critical care? Well, we're not going to emerge from this pandemic, We just like we didn't emerge from AIDS. AIDS is still there. <laughs> we're not from this. This is going to be with us the rest of your life, but it's going to be in a subdued way. What's happening is there's becoming much more appreciation of basic public health issues of infection. Um, the, um, I hope that we'll have vaccines that are as good as the flu vaccine, but you understand the flu vaccine doesn't prevent you from getting the flu. It just prevents you from dying if you get the flu relative to if you would have died. It makes it less severe. So the point is, is that What's happening in medicine is, is irreparable. We're going to be much more uh, isolation conscious. We should have always been washing our hands, but now people think of it. I think the uh, use of masks will not be universal, uh, but there, the, the thing I worry about is the large congregations of people, sporting events, symphonies, concerts, uh, a conference with 8,000 cardiologists in Dallas, you know, if we still have infections, will those things occur? My fear is that we are still trying to figure out how we can maintain the personal interaction we're supposed to have in the setting of infection. And that is being resolved. I will tell you, I haven't been to an international meeting since November, which means I didn't go to about seven or eight of them that I was supposed to go to. And what I really miss, I don't miss the airfare, air, air travel at all. The traveling was a pain. I do miss the camaraderie of being with these people, to seeing the audience and looking in their eyes as I gave my lectures, and the excitement afterwards when they would come up to ask me questions they were too embarrassed to ask when I was on the podium. And I miss that personal interaction. And I hope that to some extent we're, we will be able to, in the next two years, find a way for us to have that group personal interaction that is now missing. And that's the thing I'm working on trying to get better because I'm pretty sure medicine will take care of itself in terms of how we handle patient care on a public health perspective. If we just get people to believe our public health officers when they say things and don't call it fake news or whatever it is, I think we'll be fine. Definitely. We definitely trust in uh, the medical and scientific uh, community. Uh, Dr. Pinsky, we're drawing to the end of um, uh, this recording, and I just want to give you the opportunity, if we haven't covered anything that you wanted our audience to know, um, uh, or if there's any uh, last words you want to leave them with, um, we'd appreciate you going ahead and letting us know. Uh, there's really not much I could like to say. I've, uh, this, the Lifetime Achievement Award represents just that, lifetime of work. And the only thing that was consistent in all of that was my desire to do the best I possibly could. And I was profoundly lucky to have the opportunity and the skill set to be able to realize that in ways that other people saw. That I'm very grateful. And we definitely commend you and congratulate you. And it's been an absolute pleasure hearing your enthusiasm, your passion, your focus that uh, has obviously been there for many, many decades. And thank you for sharing uh, your life with us and for benefiting uh, science and medicine and everyone around you so much. You take care. Thank you very much. You take care too. Bye-bye. A big thank you to Dr. Pinsky 
And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.